views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show is pre-recorded. Everyday Wealth is produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky. Ms. Chatsky is not an employee or client of the firm. She receives fixed cash compensation as host and for related activities, and therefore has an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see www.edelmanfinancialengines.com slash everydaywealth. The 2022 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed by the firm, technology spending, staff diversity, succession planning, and other metrics. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2022 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with personal finance expert, Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky. Hey, everyone. It's Gene Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Everyday Wealth. So my nephew, Ben, my brother's son, Ben, is one of the every 36 children in the United States with autism spectrum disorder, according to CDC statistics. Those are the numbers. And Ben's case is more severe than most. He will never live on his own, which means that his parents have for years been involved in a planning process that gets to the heart of who will take care of Ben when they are no longer able to do that themselves. It's an emotional challenge, but it's also a financial one and a legal one. And it's one that a huge number of families in this country face, not just with autism spectrum disorder, but with the whole range of what we call special needs. Children who may have an emotional, mental, behavioral, physical, or learning challenge or impairment that requires additional or specialized services or accommodations. That's not my definition, by the way. That's how the folks at Merriam-Webster define special needs. How many families are we talking about? Well, Recent estimates in the United States show that about one in six, 17% of children aged three through 17 have one or more developmental disabilities. Again, that's a CDC stat, and that's just through age 17. There are many individuals who will require a lifetime of care, and those numbers, sadly, are on the rise. So today, For the many parents, grandparents, other family members, and friends who are trying to make sure that they have taken all of the necessary steps to care for children and young adults and others with special needs, we're going to dive into the tactical information that you need and talk about how to get help if it's been elusive. And in order to do that, I want to welcome Isabel Barrow and Aaron Smith back to the show. Isabel is a financial planner, and Aaron is a director of estate planning at Edelman Financial Engines. Nice to see both of you. Hi, Jean. Hi, Aaron. I'm so pleased to be back. So raising any child can be a rewarding and challenging experience. It's also an expensive experience. According to the USDA, the cost for raising a child is about $13,000 per year. It adds up to $233,000. It doesn't include college, but 
If you have a child with disabilities, it is a lot more expensive. Lifetime costs range from 1.4 to about two and a half million. When we look at the discrepancies between these numbers, Isabel, why is there such a big gap? Well, but you mean a big gap between raising, raising a, one child, you know, raising a child without developmental disabilities versus a, a family that is raising a child with? There are so many expenses that can arise related to this. And obviously, it's dependent upon your child and their level of, of challenge, difficulty, and, and how much money you have to spend on things like medical services or therapy or, or prescription drugs, respite care, which is when the primary caregiver, for example, needs a break or, or a vacation. And a big cost is hiring a caregiver, right? Yeah. Um, and of course, a lot of those expenses may not be covered by insurance. I mean, I can tell you from similarly to you, I have a special needs um, brother and he lives with my mom. And there are so many varied expenses that come along with that, just even completely unrelated to his medication and caregiving. Little things like just cleaning up after him. I mean, Mm -hmm. he's not capable of, of cleaning up after himself per se. And so there's a house cleaning service that has to come in. There's so many varied expenses that can add to that, that can in inflate that number from the 200 plus thousand to the 2 million plus over a lifetime. Sometimes there are ways that we can ameliorate some of these costs and and we do it by using some estate planning tactics. So Aaron, when you talk to families who have children with special needs, I know that you often talk about two things, special needs trusts and ABLE accounts. And my nephew, Ben, well, he has both, basically, or my brother has set both of those things up for him. So can you explain what they are and how they work? Yeah, absolutely. And when Isabel and I speak with parents with special needs children, a lot of what those parents are wanting to plan around is not only um, being sure that there are adequate funds to support their child for his or her lifetime, but structuring that wealth in a way that still allows the child to receive any needs-based benefits. So things like SSI, things like Medicaid, Those are needs-based programs, but there are ways to structure wealth wherein a child can benefit from a parent's inheritance, but not put those um, government benefits in jeopardy. Um, And two ways of doing this, you know, one is a special needs trust that's sometimes called a supplemental needs trust. Another way of doing this are ABLE accounts. And very often, a combination of the two is what many parents do, just such as with your nephew. There are two different types, not to complicate things, but to complicate things. There are two different types of special needs trusts. So before we get to the ABLE accounts, can we talk about what those are? Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, a special needs trust or a supplemental needs trust is an irrevocable trust, just like many parents set up for their children, whether they um, have disabilities or not. But these irrevocable trusts are structured in a way that the child can still you know, benefit from an inheritance or benefit from a gift, um, but not jeopardize their their government benefits. So, um, in other words, these trusts are structured in a way that they're not deemed to be a, a resource of the child for qualifying for benefits. And Jean, to your point, there are two types of special needs trusts. They are very similar, um, but it really depends on who creates the trust, who funds these trusts. So for parents or grandparents or other family members who are creating and funding a special needs trust, 
That's called a third-party special needs trust. The reason it's called a third party is that there is someone other than the beneficiary who's creating and funding this trust. So these can be repositories for um, lifetime gifts, um, an inheritance after someone passes away. And just like many other irrevocable trusts, the special needs individual is the sole beneficiary during his or her lifetime. And then when that beneficiary passes away, the grantors are able to say what happens to those assets when the beneficiary has passed away. They might go to other siblings, other family members, or they could go to charity. Isabel, Aaron mentioned that it's important that we preserve, and I've had experience with this as well, but it's important that we preserve those government benefits, largely government benefits. Can you talk about the restrictions here? Because they are varied and they are complicated. Right. And I mean, obviously, we're trying to keep this simple because at the end of the day, I mean, if you have a special needs child or family member, I mean, this is really something that you should be considering. So don't let the perceived complexity of this deter you from looking into it further. But the reality is, is that these trusts are, they are somewhat prohibitive in what you can use the money for. Meaning, you know, you, you're not going to set up a trust with a million dollars for a disabled child, and and then that's just their, their money to use for whatever they want, but they're also still able to keep their Medicare, for example, or their SSI, or whatever government benefits they may be receiving, they may be entitled to due to that disability, because because the trust and the, the way that these trusts are structured and allowed to be um, existing is because they are limited. You cannot use these funds to pay for things that they're already getting from those social services like Medicare or SSI. So it can't go to pay for things like rent. It can't go to pay for basic support, you know, food, housing. And if the trust money is used for those things, it can actually trigger a reduction or even loss of some of those benefits because now, you know, it's being looked at by so from a social services standpoint that, well, you already have money to pay for that stuff, so why do you need to use the system to pay for it? But this special needs trust really is set up to be used for all of those extras, like the things we were talking about that are outside of just your basic needs. And that could be clothing. It can be personal assistance, like I was saying, like with housekeeping or something, therapy medical equipment, vacations, right? Another feature of the third-party trust is that, and this is important, there's no Medicaid reimbursement requirement, which means if you're on Medicaid and you have funds left in your trust when you pass away, you don't have to use that trust money to pay back Medicaid, mm. which you might otherwise have to do for a lot of types of trusts um, if you have used Medicaid throughout your life and you have funds left over when you pass away. It would otherwise have to pay back Medicaid first. Well, and, and that's a big distinction between this third-party trust and the other kind of special needs trust, Erin. This is a first-party special needs trust. Right. Um, with a first-party special needs trust, it operates very much in the same way as a third-party, but this is a trust that is actually funded by the disabled individual. Hmm. And this usually occurs one of two ways. Either there is some type of a settlement or a judgment um, so the individual was injured. That's what triggered the disability. Any judgment is paid to that individual. The individual then turns around, creates and funds a first party special needs trust. The other way where you may see a first party special needs trust funded is if that child has received an inheritance from a family member. 
and that family member may not um, have been coordinating their own estate planning, mm-hmm. or perhaps they didn't know to not name their, their you know disabled grandchild as a beneficiary on an IRA. And in that instance, the disabled individual is able to then create a first-party special needs trust, fund it, still be receiving those government benefits, because again, these trusts are structured to supplement what the benefits pay for, um, not replace those. The big difference with a first-party special needs trust and why um, it, you know no one wants to have a first-party special needs trust is that when the beneficiary passes away, if there are any dollars remaining in that first-party special needs trust, it does go for a Medicaid payback. That is the big difference between a first-party special needs trust and a third-party. The third party doesn't have the Medicaid payback. The first party does. And that can be, you know, to Isabel's point, that can be a lot of money. So just a couple of follow-ups there, Erin, because I would imagine that this kind of happens all the time, that a very well-meaning grandparent leaves money to their special needs grandchild, not knowing that it's not going to be allowed to go into the pre-existing third-party special needs trust because how the money is being left. Can you have both a third-party special needs trust and a first-party special needs trust? And can you strategize to then use up the money in the first-party special needs trust first so that you avoid this having to pay back Medicare thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. So in a perfect world, an individual is not going to have a first-party special needs trust because they received an inheritance. Because in a perfect world, grandparents and other family members are going to be coordinating with mom and dad to direct any inheritance into an existing third-party special needs trust. But certainly, things happen, um, even well-intentioned, you know, gifts and inheritances happen. And in that case, you would have, you know, mom and dad have the third-party special needs trust. That child's direct inheritance goes into a first-party special needs trust. And Jean, absolutely, parents want to be strategic you want to spend down that first party special needs trust first because of the Medicaid payback provision. So I have a question and this came up in my family. Um, So Aaron, you know, and this is my understanding, so correct me if I'm wrong. If you have one third party special needs trust that let's say is set up by uh, one parent, everyone in the family can use that trust now as the beneficiary if they want to leave money for the disabled child. So everyone, as long as that one trust is set up, this well-meaning grandparent didn't need to leave the inheritance outright. They could have left the trust as the beneficiary and that would have avoided having to create this other trust. Right, Aaron? Absolutely. So a single third-party special needs trust can receive gifts and inheritances from any number of individuals. So that's important um, to know then if you have a special needs trust, make your family aware of it. You know, yeah. give everyone a copy of the document or whatever you have and let them know if you're planning on leaving money, you, you've got to make that. You've you got to leave it to the trust, not the person. Right. Make them aware of the difficulty and the challenge it could create for your child, even though you're trying to help them. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Let's leave special needs trusts, the world of special needs trusts, and let's talk about ABLE accounts. Isabel, explain. Well, and this is an interesting one. And Jean, you and I were talking about this earlier today that 
this account has been around since 2014, but not many people know about it. Even those with disabled children that may understand or have special needs trust, they don't know that this ABLE account exists. So the ABLE account, like I said, was passed, the Congress passed the Achieving a Better Life Experience Act at the end of 2014. And I kind of think of this as like an IRA for a disabled individual, right? The ABLE Act allows states to create tax advantage savings programs for eligible people with disabilities. So much like a 529 is sponsored by a state, this ABLE Act is sponsored by the state. So similarly, you'd have to go to your state and set it up through the, you know, ABLE Act accounts on your state. But if you do that, the earnings in this account, it's a regular investment account, again, like an IRA or a 529. The earnings grow tax-deferred and are not taxed if they're used for eligible purposes. And these accounts allow the qualifying individuals, the the disabled individual, to save money for um, some of those other exempt expenses. It is kind of like a 529 for a person with special needs or disabilities because there is a whole list of expenses that can be funded from the money in this account. Erin, what... Do you have to do to qualify to be able to have one of these accounts? What are those specifics? So really, the only real requirement with an ABLE account is that you have a disability and that disability occurred before the age of 26. So an individual can be older than 26 in opening this account, but the disability had to occur before then. And that's really the requirement with these. Okay. And and generally, if you're considered disabled for SSI purposes, you're going to be considered disabled for purposes of ABLE account eligibility. How much can you put in? So with ABLE accounts, there is an annual contribution limit. And so uh, an individual can only have one account. Every ABLE account um, can only be funded with up to the annual exclusion amount. In that particular year for 2023, that's $17,000. So that $17,000 can come from one individual, can come from multiple, but the totality of those contributions can't exceed 17. If the account owner is is working um, in certain circumstances, then that account owner can make additional contributions um, a little shy of of $13,000. Much like 529 plans, every state has a limit for how much an ABLE account can hold. You know, these range from, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars to up to $500,000. One thing to remember with ABLE accounts is much like a special needs trust that is not considered a resource for eligibility for benefits, ABLE accounts are the same way. They're not considered a resource for purposes of of qualifying for needs-based benefits. However, an ABLE account has to be under $100,000 for that beneficiary slash owner to continue to receive SSI. If that individual's ABLE account exceeds $100,000, SSI will be suspended until that account is spent down to $100,000 or lower. So, Isabel, if you have one of these, how do you maneuver that? I mean, clearly you don't want to over-contribute. At the same time, you want the money to grow. Yeah, I mean, I think that what we see a lot of is if you already have a pre-existing special needs trust, you may end up transferring some of that money, like again, in this case up to, you know, let's say it's $15,000 a year, $17,000 a year into the ABLE account 
And so you're getting some out of this, like, let's say it's a first party or a third party special needs trust into the ABLE account. And you're using that ABLE account for, again, these supplemental expenses that are, it's not interfering with, like what I said before, where you can't use the money from a special needs trust for your basic needs, because that's going to exempt you from receiving those benefits, right? So this ABLE account is not going to exempt you from those things. So you might want to use that first for any of your extra expenses and then continue to fund it. But yeah, you do want to be careful not to overfund these. Just like you're you're careful not to overfund a 529 with more than you need to go into your kids' college accounts, you don't want to overfund the ABLE account. So Aaron, how does this dance between the special needs trust and the ABLE account work in real life? I mean, it sounds like you probably should have both and that they should work in tandem and that you need a strategy for making them work in tandem without running afoul of the rules. You do. And and one of the really nice things about ABLE accounts is that they can pay for more things than a special needs trust can. So if a special needs trust pays the disabled individual's housing, that potentially can trigger a loss of benefits. Those aren't the same rules with ABLE accounts. So what is deemed as a qualified disability expense is much broader. Um, So for example, an ABLE account can pay for housing. It can pay for food. And so you do have to strategize between the two. Perhaps housing is paid out of the ABLE account. Um, Other supplemental expenses are paid out of the special needs trust. So it is certainly a coordination of efforts, but it's well worth it given the benefits of the ABLE account, given the benefits of the special needs trust. And the Medicaid provisions that you were talking about before, Aaron, do ABLE accounts have these provisions where you have to pay back Medicaid after somebody dies? No, that's the nice thing. So with ABLE accounts, that's the other reason not to overfund an ABLE account is that there is a Medicaid payback provision to it. Okay. So Com- much like with the first party special needs trust, um, there's also a Medicaid payback with the ABLE account. So again, another reason to keep the balances in mind and perhaps, you know, for older individuals, perhaps spend down from the ABLE accounts first. Okay. Here is what I think, having just had this conversation. Don't do this by yourself. Like, don't do this by yourself. This is this. I mean, these are really complicated waters. Do it as you said, because not doing it is a lot worse than having to deal with the complications of doing it. But don't do it by yourself. Get some help. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you you don't want to look at any of these through the just like through the symbol lens of, well, I heard this is the right thing to do. I I read an article. I heard it on a podcast. No, you've got to understand from your circumstance standpoint, whether or not these accounts will apply to your situation. And, you know, you may have a child who's disabled, but who's not actually receiving public benefits, in which case, you know, you may want to look at completely different strategies because we're not worried about structuring in a way that they're going to continue to receive public benefits or or Medicaid pullbacks or any of that stuff. But you still need to fund something for their future because you know they're going to need more support when you're gone. So everyone's circumstances are different and you've got to talk to an advisor to make sure that not not only a financial advisor, but a tax advisor, an estate attorney, you know, talk to the professionals who can help you to come up with a plan and a strategy so that all of these different pieces are working together in your full financial planning puzzle. Yeah. Absolutely. I know that there are a few other documents that people will probably need. Erin, can you just take us through them? And for those of you who are listening, this is a lot simpler than what we've just been talking about. So I just want to set your mind at ease. 
Now, these certainly are a little, uh, you know, a little more simple. Whether, you know, an individual has a disability or not, everyone over the age of 18 needs some basic estate planning documents. So everyone needs a durable power of attorney, right? This is a document where you're naming someone to make financial and other non-healthcare decisions on your behalf. That's really important for everyone, including individuals with disabilities. The medical power of attorney or the advanced directives for healthcare. Similarly, this is very, very important. This is the document where an adult, so anyone over the age of 18, is naming someone to make healthcare decisions on their behalf if they're not able to make those decisions for themselves. And all parents, I think, very often overlook these documents. But whether your child has a disability or not, once they're 18, they're an adult. And so you're not entitled to make healthcare decisions for your child. So these are really important documents to have as well. How about a letter of intent? That's what a lot of parents, a lot of parents as part of their estate plan will include a letter of intent. Um, And so this is, you know, a letter of wishes are sometimes what these are called. And this is a document where um, mom and dad can state really their, their, their hopes and their goals and their wishes for their child. It can, you know, very often these documents include, um, you know, information on medical histories, um, information on a child's uh, favorite things, you know, their goals for that child's housing. And this is just a document where if mom and dad aren't around to explain things, um, it's a way for them to state all those things to put everything down on paper. I actually think everyone should have one of these documents, whether or not you have a child with special needs. It's important for everyone to have. It really is. It's, it's important for everyone to have. It's, it's almost your final voice. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Such great information. Erin, thank you so much for walking us through all of it. Thanks for being here again today. Oh, it's my pleasure. It is time for us to take a quick break. But before we do, just a very short story. I saw this a couple of months ago. It just stuck with me. There was a teacher in Pittsburgh named Savannah Barton. She completed the half marathon with her student, Sophie, who is nonverbal and needs help walking. Savannah ran the 13.1 mile course while pushing Sophie in her stroller. And at the finish line, Sophie got up and she walked across with Savannah, which is just, I know, amazing. And and yay for teachers, right? right? Just shows we need more great teachers like this. Stick with me. After this break, I will talk with a father who built a theme park for his daughter with special needs. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Are you worried about the current volatility of the market, inflation rates, talk of a recession? Are you second guessing your investment decisions? What better time than now to ensure your finances are moving forward than by getting an expert second opinion from an Edelman Financial Engines planner? Whether you already have a planner or simply need a new perspective, they can help you manage your wealth plan to both weather the volatility of the market today and help you protect and preserve it over the long term. To schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today, call 833-PLAN-EFE. That's 833-752-6333. Or visit their website at efewealthplanners.com. Put your uncertainties to rest once and for all. Schedule your complimentary wealth checkup right now. Welcome back. Thanks so much for listening. We are devoting this show 
to kids with special needs. We've been talking with Isabel Barrow, a planner from Edelman Financial Engines, about what parents and grandparents and other guardians can do for their kids. And this next story is going to melt your heart because it's about a father who built a whole new world for his child. His name is Gordon Hartman. He has a child named Morgan who was born with both physical and cognitive disabilities. And it all started back in 2006. The family was on a vacation. Gordon watched Morgan not be able to participate in swimming with some other children because she was not able to be verbal. It, it, it made Gordon incredibly sad, put a lump in his throat. And after seeing his daughter excluded, he started to think about what he could do to change that. And he started on a quest to create a space where no one was left out. His idea was to create an inclusive theme park. That's how Morgan's Wonderland came to be. Gordon is with us. Gordon Hartman, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. This is just such an incredible story. Well, Jean, you did a great job going over the, a little bit of the history of uh, what's allowed me an opportunity for uh, some 15 years now to really give back and bring about inclusion. So thank you for the opportunity. Of course. I mean, I just gave a few cursory details. Tell us about Morgan's Wonderland and, and how it really came to be. Take us there with your words. Yeah. Well, um, back about 18 and a half years ago, I had the opportunity to retire, if you will. I had run many different companies in real estate, mortgage, and title, and a lot of different things. And I was very young at the time, about 41. And, and uh, I, I just decided that it was time for me to do something that I thought would be, um, I guess, in many ways, um, more committed to assisting versus just assisting myself. And watching uh, my daughter uh, and the opportunities that she had has because of opportunities that we were able to give her. Uh, we've started a foundation uh, in uh, two th late 2005. Uh, you mentioned the story of 2006. Uh, in early 2000, or when we started the foundation, it was about helping different nonprofits to be able to develop ways to become bigger, to do more, to assist our friends with special needs. But what happened in 2006 really opened my eyes to a need of bringing about more inclusion. And what I mean by that is there's a million people, I mean, I'm sorry, a billion people on this earth who have some form of special needs, uh, whether it be cognitive, physical, whatever the case may be. And in many ways, uh, they're excluded. Uh, and I watched that happen in particular uh, with my daughter, as you explained, uh, when we were uh, having fun in a pool, I got out, she saw three other children at the other end of the pool, uh, two of them throwing a ball back and forth, and she wanted to be a part of it. So I watched as she moved herself closer to them, but as she did that, because she could not communicate in a normal fashion, those wonderful kids uh, got out of the, out of the pool. And Morgan uh, was by herself. And I, that, as you mentioned, did bring a lump in my throat because as a father, you always want your child and, and your children to always be a part of something. And so uh, I mentioned it to my wife. We started talking about it and said, well, why don't we build a place uh, where those with and without special needs could come together and play? 
And what that would mean is uh, bringing uh, those with uh, even acute special needs, uh, those who are in wheelchairs, visual disabilities, hearing uh, issues, all sorts of different uh, potential items that they have that affect their lives that slow things down or not allow them to do things like um, what many times people refer to as the typical child or the typical adult, but could have the opportunity to join together and play. We didn't know if this would work, but what we did is we put out an email and said, we're thinking about this idea, don't know totally what it means, but here's the beautiful thing. Uh, Hundreds of people showed up to hear about this general concept of an ultra-accessible, fully inclusive theme park. And so here we are now, uh, some uh, 13 years later after it opened, uh, seeing over um, 2.8 million people from all 50 states and uh, 121 countries uh, from around the world. Uh, what is unique about it? Well, what it does is it allows individuals with and without special needs to play together. And we're not just talking children. Many times we refer to special needs individuals uh, as uh, children, but it, they do grow up. You know, Morgan's going to be 30 in September, and she still has many of the issues she had when she was three. And so that's how the park was designed with all those thoughts in, in play. And um, we didn't know if it would be successful. But those with and without special needs come to play? And what we found is, yes, they will and they enjoy it. And it's open and brought down barriers with the hope that the next time a situation like that may happen in a pool, that maybe those three children will have experienced something like Morgan's Wonderland and said, hey, come on, I get it. Let's all play together. And that's the idea behind this. And anyone who has a special needs comes in for free. We don't charge because we don't want to present them another barrier, and that being economics. Because as I many times say, the reason I'm involved so passionately and so involved on 24-7, 365 and what I do is because Morgan's one of the lucky ones. You know, she has a doctor. She has a therapist. She has the medicines. She has everything she needs to be able to get through life in a very in a more comfortable way. Uh, most people don't. And so if we charged, it would cut many people out because of the financial issue of having to uh, come to uh, Morgan's Wonderland and not be able to afford it. So that's a quick overview of Morgan's Wonderland. Since then, we've expanded a whole lot, a lot more things going on. But that was the beginning and, and really what started us on this whole idea of inclusion. I know there are people who are listening who are just like, tell me where this place is. I want to go. I want to <laughs> I want to bring my child. Well, we're in a great, great city, a city that I, I've grown up in, and, and I really consider it one of the top cities in, in the country, and that is San Antonio, Texas. Uh, we're right in the heart of Texas. Uh, uh, it, it's a, a city that um, has embraced what we're doing, but as it's embraced, so has this state and so has this country, and the whole idea of bringing about more inclusion. For people who are looking to create a little bit of this in their own backyards. What has this taught you about inclusion and about how to facilitate it, maybe in a, in a smaller, more cost-effective sort of a way that people can take what you've learned and, and apply these lessons in their own day-to-day lives? Well, let me give you an example. And in respect to that, you know, it doesn't, the small things make a big difference in what we're talking about. Uh, For example, the carousel, we made some minor adjustments to it. But when we went to the person who was building the carousel, they kind of looked at us and why do we need to make these adjustments? And once we explained it, they went, we're all on board. 
Uh, and so, but they're small things. And, and so what someone can do if they wish to bring this to their community is basically find a, a place where they can develop uh, a, a plan of uh, a park and, and make sure that when they're thinking about it, they're curious about how to ensure inclusion. When you come into Morgan's Wonderland, you don't need to build a $50 million Morgan's Wonderland. You can do it with much less money by just uh, adapting some of the things that we have done, uh, whether that be a train ride or whether that be something as simple as a sand circle. Uh, why I say a sand circle versus a sandbox is because if it's a sandbox, an individual is, uh, in a wheelchair is not getting in. And so we also raise the sand so that person can also touch the sand if they can't get down to the sand. And we also have ways in which they can play with the sand without having to get out of their wheelchair. These are small little details that make a big difference to ensure that 100% of our individuals have an opportunity. Taking that same example of that sand circle, something very simple, something very inexpensive, we also have a gentleman, it's a good example that I often use, who's in his late 30s, uh, quite a large gentleman who plays in the sand circle because at a cognitive level, he's about a two or three-year-old. But the children uh, that are around him or the other adults that are around him are enjoying it just as much as he is. Uh, and he's having fun. They're having fun. He's feeling acceptance. They're learning that being around a, a larger gentleman, older person to play with is okay. And it's, it's, it brings about that whole element of a whole new thought process. Not hard to do, but simply just getting outside the box and being curious is the best way I would advise people to look at a situation and being able to make this and bring this to their community. And we're seeing that all over the country and not only in the continent in the United States, but even outside the country uh, working. And now we're hearing from states and we're hearing from airports and we're hearing from uh, different groups that say, how can we do this in a bigger way? So one of the things that we're doing is actually forming Morgan's Inclusion Institute, which will open in about uh, 12 to 18 months so that we can assist individuals and groups and cities and uh, states, et cetera, on how to bring about more inclusion in respect to whether it be on a small scale or a big scale. One of the things that's so clear about you is that you love what you do. Um, yeah, you, you've come out of your, your, your job running companies and, and you have very, very clearly found something that is purposeful to you. We talk a lot on this show about that, about retirement and about figuring out what is going to light you up once you leave your workaday career. What advice do you have for other people about finding something that is meaningful to them? Well, see, I was very blessed by having a daughter who had special needs. And so when I had the chance to say, how was I going to take my life from one of some success to one of of significance, it was, it was right in front of me. I, I knew, but if, and, and I think everybody has that opportunity to find what that is. Mine was uh, just very clear, but if it's not clear, I've often talked with people and I start saying, think about what are you, you're, I know you're passionate about something, it, it, whether it's individuals with special needs or it's about whatever this or that, find what that is. And, um, and, and many times in a kind of a funny way, I will say retirement's way overrated because I will tell you that, yeah, when I was 41, I could have just backed up, had what I needed resources wise to just take it easy. But I am so blessed and honored that I have the opportunity to really have a, a 60 hour week. I'm still working, if not more than what I used to, because passion and fulfillment is much more than money. And I think that at some point you realize that uh, I was blessed to be able to see it early on. And it's been, was by far the best decision. Money is necessary. It, it, it gets us to be able to survive and be able to do what we have to do. But once there's a 
point where you say, hey, I might be able to help in some way others. To me, that's something much bigger than any dollar can give you. Gordon Hartman, we are going to leave it there. For people who are looking for additional information on Morgan's Wonderland and the forthcoming Morgan's Inclusion Institute, where can they find that? Well, first of all, there's a lot of other things. We have Morgan's Inspiration Island. We have Morgan's Wonderland Camp. We have Morgan's Wonderland Sports and a lot of other things. The Institute, as you mentioned, a lot, and we also have a multi-assistance center. I won't get into all that but I, because I know of time, but what I will tell you is if you go to goinclusion.com, goinclusion.com, you can see all the different things that we are currently active with in respect to bringing about more inclusion uh, to the, the world. And to spark cultural change, that's really what we're about. Uh, and we're just getting started. Uh, there's a lot more on the agenda. There's a lot more that needs to be done. But goinclusion.com, where I'd suggest people go to learn more. What an amazing story. Gordon Hartman, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for this opportunity. Enjoyed it. Thank you. What an amazing story. What an incredible father. I don't know if you've been keeping up with this, but the 2023 Special Olympics wrapped up about a month ago in Berlin. And the message coming out of this year's event was that there is hope that a new era of inclusion is about to start. 330 thousand people attended this year's event and watched more than 6,500 athletes from all over the world. It's estimated that the event reached more than a billion people online. A guy named Sven Albrecht was the head of the organization of the game in Berlin, and he said, the most important message is that we've given the athletes a stage that did not exist before in the Special Olympics. And my hope is that today, maybe we have given you a little bit of information, a little bit of a helping hand that you didn't have before if you have a child in your life with special needs. And if you don't, I hope that we've inspired you to help if that's something that you're interested in and able to do. Consider targeting some of your charitable donations to organizations that help children with special needs. And there are a range of ways that you can do that. You can consider different strategies when it comes to making donations. They have different implications for your tax situation. One piece of advice that I'd share is don't simply write a check. Instead, consider donating some of your investments, your appreciated investments. It can lower your capital gains taxes. This helps the charity keep more of your donation too. Something else to look into is what's called a charitable remainder trust. This can give you a little more flexibility with your donations as well as offering other tax benefits. And of course, it is something to talk with your financial planner about. If you've got one, great. If you don't, just pick up the phone and give the folks at EFE a call. That's all for this show. Please be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. Visit everydaywealth.com as well, where all of our episodes are available to you. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk soon. You've been listening to Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth with Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. 
If you've missed an episode or are interested in additional personal finance topics, be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast. Our podcast library offers helpful insights on topics such as tax-efficient portfolios, retirement withdrawal strategies, investing, and financial planning, to name just a few. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com, or find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.